Does your mind automatically tune into the worry and fear channel? Are you suffering from worry about your loved ones? What tools have you found to help escape from constant worrying? Welcome to episode 385 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Shannon, Mary, Dana, Anka, Mavis, Michaela, and Teresa. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Shannon, Mary, Dana, Anka, Mavis, Michaela, and Teresa for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I'm your host today, and joining me today is Gigi. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Gigi. Thank you. So glad to be here. Thank you. I always ask my guests to bring a reading. Why don't you tell us what you brought? This is something I wrote in my book when I was halfway through writing my book about how to worry less, and my husband started drinking again. And he hadn't had a drink for 20 years. So here's from my journal entry that I put in the book. I can hear myself trying to figure out how much Peter is drinking. Is this inside my hula hoop? No. Instead of focusing on him, I need to take responsibility for what's going on inside my own hula hoop. Right now, every fiber of my being wants him to stop. Here's my all hell break loose scenario. Peter drinks more and more, becomes abusive, financially stupid, and or dies from the disease. Okay, I've shined the flashlight on the fear monster, and my heart is pounding away in my chest. I really need my loving power to take care of this because I can't. One definition of codependency is doing everything you can to remove the pain or dysfunction from your loved one. People caught in this trap see themselves as victims by thinking, If only he would change, I could be happy. Or they take the martyr role, perhaps saying, I have to take care of him all the time because nobody else will. A codependent person is content only when the other person isn't drinking, overeating, using drugs, overworking, or depressed. But when that person reverts to the disturbing behavior, the codependent serenity evaporates. Such people often suffer from debilitating exhaustion, depression, bitterness, or all of these. Al-Anon members learn to take care of themselves first, set limits, and allow the dysfunctional person to receive the full consequences of their choices. They do this by following the same 12 steps used to treat alcoholism. Codependence is, after all, a form of addiction. Ain't it, though? Maybe you could take a little bit of time to introduce yourself and where does codependency and worry come into your story? Obviously, there's one place where it comes in, and then we'll go from there. Okay. My name is Gigi, and I am one of those alcoholics. (laughs) 
So I had been in a 12-step program for my own substance abuse for about 20 years when Peter started drinking again. But there's a backstory here because Peter is my fourth husband. And part of why I got into recovery myself from alcoholism was because in my third marriage, I was already going out and to bars and picking up people. It was a mess because I really had wanted to have a healthy relationship and maybe have children and blah, blah. And I had crashed and burned multiple times and I didn't know why. So the psychologist said, try having one drink and then have a second drink and then see if you can stop. And it took me six months to realize that if I had even one or two, sometimes I could stop and sometimes I would close the bar, pick up the stranger, do crazy, scary things. So my third husband and I went to therapy. And finally, for the first time, I didn't run away from a relationship with my saddle and my skis. (laughs) I stayed, went to therapy with him. And we did decide to get divorced. And I was about three years sober by then, maybe two. Then I'm at a meeting. Very nice guy comes in, offers me his chair. And this is Peter. I met him at an AA meeting. He was four years more sober than I was. And this time I was in therapy. I was in recovery. I refused to make this man the higher power of my life like I had before. So we took a long time, two and a half years to get to know one another before we got married. And he's really a fabulous guy. He did stop going to meetings, but he never seemed like an unhappy person or like in a dry drunk. His main thing had been cocaine. And he always said if he saw any of that, he'd run from it. I came from a dysfunctional family with an alcoholic father. Mm -hmm. And actually, my former husbands were not alcoholic. One was gay, didn't know it at the time. And one was like a written contract that we could dissolve any time because it was 1973 and we were terminally cool. And then that third one was the one I was hoping would work. (laughs) Anyway, Peter is a great guy, no worries. And then after a while, he says, I think I'd like to have a beer with the guys after golf. And we talked about it. He didn't hide anything. And I said, let's just try that. If it escalates, that's a problem. Anyway, a few months later, I found a half a gallon of vodka, mostly gone, in the garage, and I just about died. And that was 2012. When it's in the garage, it's not normal drinking, huh? Yeah. Scared the hell out of me. Oh, I bet. Yeah. And I, of course, I knew what to do, go running to Al-Anon. So had you been to Al-Anon before or you just knew it was there for when you needed it? Yeah. I went early in my sobriety when Al-Anon was still joined with adult children of alcoholics, but I hadn't really worked Al-Anon for any issue of codependency of my own, I think. I was codependent with work and I had perfectionism and I worked through a lot of things with therapy and some adult children of alcoholic meetings, but I hadn't ever had to work Al-Anon for my loved one drinking, (laughs) which I started doing immediately. Yeah, Yeah, it was probably helpful to know that it was there for you, huh? Yeah, yeah, it was. I was really scared. 
I mentioned that I wrote a book and I was in the middle of writing it in 2012 when this happened. And the reason I wrote the book was because through these 20 some years of sobriety I'd had up until then, I'd had all kinds of things happen, health problems, my prior divorces, so on. And I had discovered the 12 steps and how well they work, but also other tools, I call them, to help us get through tough times. The energy work, the tapping, cognitive restructuring, a bunch of things. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to write a book that would be useful to recovering people, but also people who aren't in recovery, who haven't had the chance to learn any of these tools. Mm -hmm. So that's why I wrote 50 Ways to Worry Less Now. And boy, did I have to, I all of chapter six actually was written about this period <laughs> with Peter and working Al-Anon. Yeah, I can see in the book that the 12-step principles kind of leaking through. Oh, yeah. I was trying to boil it down for an everyday person. And I also was trying to deal with the, quote, God idea and the word God. So I ended up mm-hmm. calling it loving power, whether it's outside you, inside, whatever you call it. But also, instead of all 12 steps, I just boiled it down to four key ideas Yeah, and then illustrated those throughout. And it's very similar to the 12 steps. But I'm going to guess that you had other times in your life where you were consumed by worry, that it didn't just pop up with your husband's relapse. No. In fact, being the youngest of four in my family, in an alcoholic family, sort of the lost child, got the good grades, hid out in my room, immediately got involved with boyfriends very deeply as soon as I could, made them my higher power. But I really got hooked on getting good grades and achieving and boyfriends. Of course, the divorces were times when I had hard times. But unfortunately, after my first divorce, that's when I discovered marijuana which dulled the pain. And of course, any time we use substances to dull the pain, we don't learn from the pain. And I didn't. The overachiever thing, I went from my crazy home into school. And at age six, my my teacher said, oh, you're smart. And so I got the good grades and I thought that was who I was. So of course, I have all these degrees. That turned out to be not a good formula. None of it was a good formula for happiness. I just was at a meeting today. We were talking about let go and let God. Yeah. And I was playing God in my own life thinking, I know exactly how to make myself happy. I get as many degrees as I can. I get a good career. I get a loving husband. I stay married and that will make me happy. And then the divorces. And then I did do well with the academic stuff, but Once I got my first job that was in higher education, oh man, I was really eaten up with stress and worry. And Mm -hmm. fortunately, shortly after I got that job, I got into recovery. So I was able to get the tools of changing my thinking, which was really helpful. (laughs) Yeah. And I call that, that negative thinking that committee in our head that's so unhelpful. And in the book, I called that whispered lies because the whispered lie for my overachieving was no one will love me unless I'm the best. My whispered lie for my marriage was I must keep a man in order to have the children and have the life that's supposed to happen no matter what. And then when it would fail, it's, oh, I'm not worthy of love. I'm too screwed up. 
to be in a healthy relationship. So all of those are those whispered lies. Yeah, I was going to say that's another one of the things that the, the committee in your head tells you. Committee in my head told me. Yeah, so helpful. That you're not good enough. You're a failure. You're not going to succeed. Despite the evidence outwardly of what a lot of people would call success, that little voice is saying, you're not good enough. Exactly. And so finding the community, which is, I think, one of the one of the tools that you talk about is finding community, finding people that are honest with you and you can be honest with them, that I can be honest with them um, because they're being honest with me. And that's a virtuous cycle, isn't it? Yes. When I'm vulnerable with you, then you can be vulnerable with me and it goes back and forth as opposed to a vicious cycle where that goes spirals downward into whatever. The virtuous cycle lifts us both up. That it does. That's a beautiful way of expressing it, that we don't have to be alone. And fortunately, because I was already in a recovery program, I had a sponsor. and I wasn't alone. I had a healthy group of women around me. But what happened because of the perfectionism was I had health problems. First, I hurt my back. In my second year of meetings, I was lying on the floor flat on my back to ease the pain. Isn't it wonderful to be in a place where you can do that? I know. And people still say to me, I remember when you were lying in the back of the room on your back. The other thing, I got two frozen shoulders, which is you can't raise your arm over shoulder height. And it goes on for two years and it's scar tissue in the shoulder capsules. And eventually it dissolves and goes away and you're fine. It was the worst pain. And that situation because I was well into recovery by then, that community I was in, you know how it your support, or even someone you don't even know, they introduced me to the writing of Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist nun. Yeah. And she wrote a fabulous book called When Things Fall Apart. And so her thoughts of being in the moment and being with ourselves, with love and compassion while we're having pain was a completely revolutionizing idea for me. I had tried to learn to meditate, but I hadn't been very successful with it. I hadn't read any of the Power of Now stuff at that point Mm -hmm. or any of the mindfulness stuff. This was early. You know, that incident of having the frozen shoulders and being so powerless, really. It's funny because the way I got humble with this program in the 12 steps was through physical pain quite a bit. It's almost as if I was so used to emotional pain that I really surrendered when I got the physical pain and had to find spiritual tools and people and not just doctors, but other ways of helping my head get screwed on straight because the thing was driving me nuts, you know. Yeah, health issues like that, the stress response was awful. So when there's physical pain or when there's emotional pain, I think one of the things that I was going to say I've learned, but maybe learning because there's always room to learn, is that I can choose whether to focus on the pain or to experience it 
being in the moment, experience the pain, but not focusing on it. Sometimes I've heard it said pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. I recently heard a a Buddhist teacher say that with different words where she used the word suffering, where I would have used pain. And she had another word that I don't remember now. That is when we mentally engage with the pain and it magnifies it and we start going down the, what was that term you used here? Oh, the all hell breaks loose scenario. Yeah. (laughs) I call that awfulizing or catastrophizing. Yes. You know, what's the worst that could happen? And then my brain says that whispered lie says, and this is what will happen, right? Exactly. So being able to come back in the moment, there was an exercise in the book about writing down your thoughts and then each one labeling, was it past or future or now? And how many of your thoughts in that exercise were past and future? And that's either, oh, everything is bad because all this stuff happened or everything's going to be bad because this stuff's going to happen. And when I can come back to the now, my suffering lessens, even if the pain is there, it's not impacting me as hard, right? Yeah, I think I do remember the first time, and I did put this in the book. I tried to learn to meditate before this, and they did introduce this crucial concept. They said to watch my thoughts, and then they asked me, who is watching your thoughts? So that was like, oh my God. Now people talk about it a lot more. Be the observer. Notice that thinking isn't the sum total of who I am. Unfortunately, when I got into recovery, I started studying A Course in Miracles, and that was a very helpful spiritual approach to I am not my body. My well-being of my body is not my ultimate goal. My spiritual well-being is my ultimate goal and being of service to others. So the idea of staying in the now moment where this is all we have, being mindful of what's here, and observing from this place of non-engagement, really, it's non-attachment, watching myself have a hissy fit because my shoulders are hurting and I can't do anything about it. That was a whole new experience. And it helped me surrender to my higher power to say, look, I can't change this, but you can help me change my thinking, which is Uh step six and seven quite a bit and 10 constantly for me. (laughs) Because ultimately the theme here is these whisper lies are driving us nuts and they're all about the future and the past. And really what we need to do is center in the present and connect with our higher power because analyzing my thinking has never helped except for the fact when I can observe the negative thoughts like the artist's way and they have you write the morning pages every morning and it's dumping your negativity or whatever's in your head out onto the page or it's the same principle of journaling where you see the thoughts out on the page and you're able to look at them from a more objective point of view and say, is that really true? Which was 
one of the exercises I have in the book, you could tell I'm a former teacher because almost every technique <laughs> I have in there, I say, now here's a little way you can practice it. And then I have a little exercise because yeah. I get so tired of those books where they say, oh, these great things happen. And then I never know exactly how they made it happen. Anyway, yes, the present moment, the mindfulness, the observing, knowing that I am not the sum total of my thoughts and feelings, that those are human experiences. And I'm having them, but I'm really a spiritual being. A spiritual being having a human experience, I think, is the yep. phrase that I've heard. At the beginning, you mentioned how you simplified, if you will, broke the, the 12 steps down into four yep. strategies, I think is the word you used. So let's talk about those for a minute. I have this list here. You say, get honest, claim power, make choices, and then use your tools. What I ended up doing was thinking of the general person, this whole issue of self-honesty, dishonesty with ourselves, numbing ourselves, denial, those kinds of things. Yeah. I don't have a problem. Everything's fine. And that, you know, you might as well put the book down if you are not going to get honest about the fact that you would like to make some changes and continuing in the same way is going to continue making you miserable. So that, for me, is the honesty piece right there is more like the surrender, the first step. Okay. Claiming power. Yeah, claiming power is, okay, you're not going to do this of your own self. And I don't know if the general public buys that, but basically it's my experience and I had to put it over there. So yeah, you have to find some kind of a power somewhere. It doesn't have to be religious. It just has to be bigger and more dependable and wiser than your own thinking and fear-based approaches. Some people have a guru. It's not good to make your lover your higher power, obviously, but a source <laughs> of wisdom. So that's claiming the power and admitting that I don't have the power myself right. to figure this out. That's part of claiming the power, and, and so I spend the time getting people in touch with that. Then in the making choices, I believe a lot and have a, had a lot of good experiences with the law of attraction, not in the case like I want a red car, but the visualizing, the affirmations. In other words, substituting positive images in my mind that are representing what I would like to have in the future rather than rehashing everything that happened in the past or that could happen in the future that I don't want. So making choices about what I want to fill my mind, how I want my future to be, and making choices. Am I willing to do the work? Am I willing to join a program even that'll help me maybe with this power thing and help me learn the tools? So basically the blockbuster tools from the 12 steps of four, five, six, seven <laughs> are all in the growth practices okay. as different ways. Because my whole thing is, and this is one of the things I learned in Al-Anon, when I heard the phrase, waiting is an action, it just about blew my mind. Because I'm an action person. I always tried to fix everything. I was a fixer at work. I was a get it done girl. And so when I would have a problem, what would we do? Bang our heads against the problem with our analysis paralysis in relationships and where love was concerned, that approach was not at all effective. So I really needed to do an inventory 
Mm-hmm. Here's what's an interesting thing. When I did the inventory around my husband's drinking, first of all, the idea weight is an action meant that to me, and this is a key point in the book, do not try to fix the situation directly. You know, if we talk <laughs> about living in the solution. Well, we don't mean the solution that you figure out. We mean the solution that is talking with healthy people, getting therapy if you need it, working the steps, doing the inventory, praying and meditating. What I think of it is filling up a sanity bank that's going to yield the approach and the words. So for my husband, I knew we had one short conversation after I saw the bottle, yeah, and then another time. I had been going to Alan and I saw him inebriated and say something mean to someone. Never had seen that. And then I knew that all this time that I was spending in Alan on was to get my head screwed on straight so that I could have a sane conversation with him, not from a panic mode. Mm-hmm. I had spent enough time filling up my sanity bank to know that I could draw on my higher power for the right words. Courage, my God, who wants to have a, especially from a dysfunctional alcoholic family, who wants to have a a conversation? You know, we're prone to either stuff it or react in the moment out of whack. So to hold myself back, do all the footwork I could to get myself sane and then have that conversation where if this continues, it's going to threaten our marriage. And to be able to say that. Before that, when I did my inventory, my whispered lies were saying, oh, this man who I thought I could trust, finally a healthy man, a healthy relationship, 20 years has been wonderful. He's just like every other man and just like my father. Because the whispered lie I took out of my family was all men hurt women. And there I had put my father's face on my husband's face. Mm-hmm. Now, it didn't mean that I didn't have things to say to him about his drinking. But if I talked to him from that freaked out, powerless little victim place of all men hurt women, that would just be the wrong direction to go in. It would just damage the relationship more. And it would be operating for me out of a place of weakness, whereas this right. man had never hurt me. <laughs> so I had to, uh, at one point, when we worked through all this, make amends to him for putting my father's face on him and responding emotionally in that way. Right. Now, the way it did turn out, I prayed my ass off and I had uh, people praying for me and I had a vision board and so on. And ultimately, I'm happily married. Okay. And I left it up to God. Was it the same man or someone else, but ultimately in a healthy relationship. And what happened is my husband found he could have two drinks and stop all the time. But what God did for me in step seven because I couldn't stand watching him have any drinks during this whole healing time when I was working the steps. God flipped the switch when I did that inventory and saw that I was looking through that little child's eyes. And I had a really good friend who talked to me. She said, what would happen if you did watch him have two drinks? What happens to you? 
we were about to go on a vacation and I knew he was going to be drinking and maybe, and I was scared. I thought when he drank, it would scare me. And that seventh step, God flipped the switch. I guess I had done enough footwork. We never know why it is that God pulls the rabbit out of the hat when God does. Trust me, when you work hard enough and long enough, it happens. Because I was able, and ever since then, to watch my husband have one or two drinks and not worry. And never count them or look for where there might be hidden anything. It's amazing. And and I'm not in denial. (laughs) Yeah, I think that connects really well with the way I've experienced step seven, that my higher power doesn't change the world for me. My higher power changes me so that I can live in the world in a new way and don't have to continue to practice that behavior that I don't like. And so I love that image of flipping the switch so that you could see your husband take a drink and not freak out or not go down the worry hole or whatever you would have done before or you thought you would have done. Yeah, it's a powerful thing. I was fortunate to study A Course in Miracles in Karen Casey's study group here in Naples. She had been my writing hero, and she's the author of the women's meditation book called Each Day a New Beginning, which was the first one Hazelton published long ago. Anyway, she's a Course in Miracles person too, big Al-Anon person and AA, but she always says, God or higher power, however we see it, help me to see this differently. And that is such a powerful prayer because when my whispered lies are shining disaster on the screen of my life, I can notice it and I can get with God and I can say, please help me to see this differently. I might have to say that 20 times an hour, 20 times a minute, but it works when we work it. When we're working a regular spiritual program of growth. Can you talk a little bit about power and the different ways in which we might be able to claim power, particularly when, as many people I talk to and myself included, have had issues with the word God, with the concept God. Maybe expand on that a little for us. Sure. Yeah, the power thing, we all... If we're lucky enough to get the gift of desperation, which is another G-O-D, but it isn't that God. It's saying, I don't think when I run my life all on my own or following some unhealthy person or making another person my higher power, when I'm letting my, and I don't know that I would have admitted that I was run by fear. I think it takes a while for people to realize. And I don't think I realized my self-centered thinking. But in the early stages, I was able to say something about the way I'm running my life isn't working. I can't get relationships to last. I'm a ball of stress at work, blah, blah. That's when, oh, there must be another way. There must be some way of living where I can get at some source of powerful wisdom and goodness that can put things right. I just read a great book by a guy about agnosticism and the 12 steps. And he came to think of the whole program. You can think of the whole Al-Anon program as a higher power. 
What I did in chapter three was say, if you're already a Christian, you have a concept of God, fine, great. If you hate that word like I did, then you can call it whatever you want, as long as you're willing to see that it's something bigger, wiser, more powerful than just my own little self that's been running my life and making it miserable. There must be something. Now I'm writing a second book, and I'm really talking about the idea of opening our hearts and living from a true self, or what many call the authentic self. Deepak Chopra often refers to the true self. So that could be a source of goodness, and this is a Course in Miracles thing, that we always have had, and will always have, whether we're in our bodies or not, a center that's connected with everybody else of goodness and love and that, that divine spark. And what I love is that we can't ruin it. So when I had those three divorces, I thought I had ruined any chance of finding anything good about myself or feeling good about myself. But this belief system, and I don't think Course in Miracles is the only one, but believing that there's a piece of us, a part of us that's indestructible and good and wise, and we can connect with it. Meditators do it all the time. Prayer. So whether you see this power outside of you or inside of you, or quite often for me, it comes, if I had to say my main source of security is that if something happened, to the worst of the worst, something mm -hmm. happens to Peter, okay? Mm -hmm. I know that I would have at least four to five women immediately around me flowing God's love into me because I would be so devastated I would forget there was even any love in the world. So the loving, giving spirit of the, for me, the women who have helped me heal is one of the biggest pieces of evidence I could point to that there is some kind of higher power. Yeah, I've seen that in my wife's life as well, whether she is part of the loving community for somebody else or whether people are gathering around her. I definitely see that happening, and it is, it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. So you did write this book, and it says 50 ways to worry less now. Worry less now. Worry yep. less now, yep. yes. Yeah, that's the big words, right? Worry yeah. less now. And worry less now sounds great, right? But I look at it and I say 50. Like, how am I yeah. ever going to remember 50 ways? And, of course, <laughs> that's not probably the right way to use the book or the right way to use the tools. Like, if I look at the Al-Anon program, if I look at the book, How Al-Anon Works, it's got... 40 some odd chapters or something in it. It's got about 20 chapters, which are about the program. And each of those chapters probably describes at least one and probably more than one. Tool. There's a chapter about the 12 steps. There's a chapter about slogans and it has several slogans in it, et cetera. Okay. But we don't put numbers on them. So I don't know how many there are. And yeah, exactly. I don't pick them all up and use them at any given time. But I know that they're there and I can go back and I can remind myself. Eric, who is a sometime guest on this podcast, talks about he needs what he calls the pocket change, the slogans or the acronyms that he can pull out of his pocket and 
because it's this little thing, let go and let God, or one day at a time, or awareness, acceptance, actions, AAA. You can remember AAA. What is AAA? Oh, yeah. First, I become aware. Then I figure out what's really going on and accept it. And then I can take an action. And then if I want to know more, I can go back to the book and read that section again. So knowing that they're there doesn't mean I have to use them all at once. And so that kind of right. diffuses the impact of 50. Oh, my God, 50? I have to remember 50 yeah. things? <laughs> yeah, I didn't set out for 50. I got those four big categories right. of the chapters, get honest, claim power, make choices, and then use growth practices. And then I figured, okay, which difficulties and times when I had my ass in a sling did I use which tools and would it fit in the honesty chapter or the claim power? Right. And I ended up, now some of them I don't have the little exercise with it, but I just describe how it works and refer people like the tapping. But there are other modalities. The cognitive reframing is really powerful. And our closest approximation is the golden key, where we notice the whispered lie and then we say, no, not all men hurt women. Peter isn't necessarily a man who hurts women. I see Peter with love. Regardless of where we go, I see Peter with love. So I'm replacing a negative, judgmental, scary thought with a loving thought. And that's what we often call the golden key. But you're right. There ended up being 50 tools. And of course, I say to the reader at the beginning, only Take what you want, leave the rest. Mm -hmm. If something appeals mm -hmm. to you, by all means, pick it up and use it and see how it works for you. So that's one way to use it. The other way, I have a friend who's a therapist at Stanford University. She works with their employees. She keeps my book in her office because when she wants to explain to someone how to do a certain technique like the golden key mm -hmm. or thought replacement or mm -hmm. a, a very complex practice is the work by Byron Katie. And I, I went to two days of training to learn how to do it. So when she wants to teach someone how to do that, it's completely explained in detail in my book with an example approved of by Byron Katie, who originated the technique called the work. One of the best ways I know to turn around a whispered lie. So what she does is she says, well, here, look it up in here. I don't have to teach you how to do it. It's explained clearly here. And here's an exercise to help you do it. So she just has them use the book. And I've had people who are sponsors say, okay, this is exactly the prayer for you right now. It's in chapter three, blah, blah, blah. Or read this about that. I would never suggest that it replace any 12-step program or book. I think, however, when a person's gotten beyond step seven, six and seven, I think it can be quite helpful because it starts to nail down some of those. Chapter five was fun to write because guess what? In my third inventory, I discovered I had been sexually touched as a child. And so that was something I put in the book and that. I found the energy work was very helpful for that. And now they have all the research on EMDR for trauma. So there's just so many wonderful tools we can have access to. And we don't always hear about all of them in the rooms of a 12-step program. 
looking at some of the list of tools here, when I look at this, I say, oh, okay, these are things that, that I learned in practicing the tools of Ellen on recovery. Gratitude list, for example. Your chapter three, Claiming Power, has seven different things. And I can look at those and I can say, oh, at any given time, oh, serenity prayer. Now, there's a place where I've gone frequently. Inspirational mm-hmm. reading. Picking up the literature is generally inspirational. And there are other inspirational readings that, that I might do. Appreciating beauty. I remember I was chatting with a friend before a meeting, and I was in just kind of a foul mood. Things aren't going well, et cetera, et cetera. This other person's doing these things. And my friend stopped me and said, did anything good happen today? And I said, yeah. It snowed, and then the sun was out, and the snow was all bright and sparkly and little fluffy bits on the trees, and it was really beautiful. Even being able to go back to that moment of earlier in the day when I had noticed that beauty, but I didn't really experience it, I was able to re-experience it and totally change my mood. And so what I think about when I think about 50 is, yeah, I have all these practices that I've learned one at a time over the actually 20 years I've been in recovery now. I can't believe it. That I can usually reach for one, and if I can't, I know where to go to find one. And I would never use them all at once. I would never even think of them all at once. I have to ask, did you get to like 48 and say, okay, I need two more? No, I don't don't know how that happened. Yeah, I never had a goal for 50. There are things from the program that you'll see that are common to us, like halts. But, uh, you know, some of the stuff, like the work, that's a really powerful thing that Byron K. Katie, masterminding is the whole protocol and everything for doing. It's really like praying for other people, but it doesn't sound mm-hmm. Christian-y. That's a really powerful one. And this radical forgiveness, Tool 43, mm-hmm. I used that in when I was so angry at my husband. And a lot of it was, even though I'd worked through so much with my dad, it was more anger about my dad. And so I did an example and I sent it to the guy and said, is this okay to put in my book as an example of working Mm. your tool? Mm. And he said, yes. Yeah, there's a lot of things. The listening part, I don't know that we all know how to listen to one another with love and care, how to pick when I'm talking about how to find people who can be good confidants. So you want your inner circle. You don't want someone who talks about themselves constantly and tells their story in response to yours. You don't want someone who awfulizes and jumps on the wagon and helps you just talk about the problem forever without guiding you to your higher power and your higher power practices and ways to get in touch with yourself. And I tried to put a little bit of research with each one because The mindfulness meditation is huge, and the eight-week course that developed by John Kabat-Zinn called MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. I took the eight-week course face-to-face after my mom died, and I was working on a different education book, and I was a bundle of nerves, and that is really worth the time, and it's offered everywhere. So I've needed a lot of tools to help me get through life and try to remain a loving, calm, productive person (laughs) rather than a bitch. (laughs) So easy to be a bitch, isn't it? Yeah, it is. 
Yeah. I think just about the first tool that maybe it is actually number one that you talked about was mindfulness meditation. And that is something that I think a lot of us in in 12-step programs struggle with this meditation thing. It's like, I can't turn off my mind. I can't sit still. And I've read a lot of things about meditation. I know I read something by John Kabat-Zinn. I get the concept, but when you say, set a timer for two minutes, it's like, I could probably do two minutes. These people are like, oh yeah, we're going to do 20 minutes of silent meditation. I'm like, I'm going to go nuts. <laughs> and I know two minutes is a really long time when you're sitting there doing nothing. Because when we do meditation in church, I'm sure that is not usually even that long. And sometimes it feels like it's too long. Do two minutes. I don't have to be perfect at it. And yeah, those thoughts are going right. to come and it's okay. And I've heard that over and over again. But, you know, I felt like that was a very gentle, like, here's this thing. And yeah. believe it or not, it's actually going to help. Spencer, there's a, there's a flip in the way we can think about it. If it's true that our whispered lies are driving us crazy, and mm-hmm. if it's true, we can observe the content of our thoughts. Mm-hmm. It seems to be that a meditation practice doesn't have as the goal to empty my mind as a matter mm-hmm. of fact the true masters you'll say no, no 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 it's about noticing what your mind is doing and then gently redirecting it so if you think like the golden key that's a technique that does exactly the same people who meditate and practice observing my thoughts and noticing when i'm freaking myself out or in the future or in the past and just gently bring myself back to some statement for the day. It may be something with the, the serenity prayer. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter what it is. But the point is, I'm learning to notice what my mind's focusing on. And if I want to change it, I have practiced enough through mindfulness meditation or other meditation practices to choose what I want to focus it on. So that is the solution, right? We don't think about the problem. We think about God and the solution and peace. Well, meditation develops exactly that skill. Okay. If we have to notice our minds and redirect them, the more often I have to do that, the more practice I'm getting. (laughs) I guess so. I had thought about that. Yeah. Oh, whoops. I'm following that rabbit trail again. Let's come back to the breathing or come back to whatever focus I'm using at the moment. Yeah. Yep. And I need training wheels. So I joined when Oprah and Deepak used to do those meditation challenges. I would join them. I wouldn't do it every single day. Mm-hmm. But also Insight Timer, the free guided meditations. If I'm just have stinking thinking, I can't change it. You know, I'm afraid I've done this or that. Those things, you know, you just look up positive thinking or feeling good about myself or hope. And there's a little guided meditation. You can pick a five-minute one, a 10-minute one. And I think of it as brain reprogramming, just like getting hypnotized. I get relaxed. They say all these things to me that are going to push out the negative and replace it with positive. And how can that be bad? Quite often, I have to use a tool like that. The other day, I was at the dentist and They were preparing a tooth for a crown, which 
if you've had that done, involves a fair amount of drilling. And yeah, there's the Novocaine and everything, but what I was able to do is take that meditation practice that I practice, and I mean that in a full sense of the word practice, and focus my thoughts, focus my attention on my breathing, because I had to keep on breathing. And when I'm tense about something, I can stop breathing. I'm sort of holding my breath, waiting for whatever it is to either happen or be over. And I can consciously breathe. I can consciously notice the tension in my hands as I'm clenching them, and I can relax. And while I'm doing that, I'm also not focusing on what's happening inside my mouth. I've found that the last couple times that I've been in that place, it is so helpful. And who would have thought yes. <laughs> I could meditate my exactly. way out of the stress yeah. of being yeah. in the dentist chair? <laughs> One of the most empowering principles is I can control what my mind focuses on. Mm-hmm. That is one thing I have complete control over. Now, sometimes I have to ask God to help me to redirect it, and that's fine. Yeah, yeah that is very empowering. I don't have to be a victim of my negative thinking. I can change it, and that's what we do in the program. Mm-hmm. You know, And if I'm expecting it to hurt, it's going to hurt. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. And, and I keep redirecting my mind. I've been in that same spot. Okay. Go back to her. You mentioned noticing the sparkling light on the snow mm-hmm. as a moment of beauty. And I hadn't mentioned this yet, but it's also an important part in the book. And some people are surprised to learn about it. I think that many of us who benefit from 12 step programs are what's called highly sensitive people. Now they're calling it an empath. Okay. But there's a woman whose research I put in there who has found that one out of five people is a highly sensitive person. What that means is that we're easily startled by loud noises. We don't often like bright light in our eyes. After a lot of social involvement, we need downtime. We need more downtime than a lot of people. We love poetry and the arts and beauty. A lot of people do, but we just savor it, maybe. Mm-hmm. So I read this and I thought, God, no wonder I felt like a freak in my family because everyone was outgoing and funny. And I was like quiet and studious and wrote little poetry, fell in love and listened to love songs. She said, it's not a bad thing to be a highly sensitive person. Because when she studied other civilizations and societies, those highly sensitive people often became the elders and the wise ones Mm. of the society. If we're able to grow through the sensitivity and not feel like a freak in the world and learn to take care of ourselves. And she even has a section on if you have a child that you think is highly sensitive, things to do to help that person. I put her suggestions for helping our sorrows in my book because why should I feel like a freak? Because I can't do more than three days on a social thing with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to have to tell people I need to leave now. I have to do that for myself. 
that's okay. Yeah. I am a little different. I'm built a little different, but I love who I am now. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, I think that is a key part of how we recover in 12-step programs is really getting to know ourselves and knowing how we respond to things, what we like, what we don't like, what is good for us and what's not good for us, right? Exactly. And really, the only point is to, as we learned, to do God's will. Okay, in my opinion, I think God wants us to love God and love one another. And my job is to clear away all the stuff that closes my heart and makes me resentful and makes me afraid to the best of my ability so that I can have that channel of love open to give and receive love. Yeah, relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will in the third step prayer. Yeah. Sir, anything you'd like to leave us with? Something that you haven't said yet or something you want to reiterate? I think people may be listening who are saying, maybe I haven't put both feet into my recovery or maybe I'm hesitating or on the edge. And for me, one of the things that held me back was I was afraid. I knew there was something inside of me that felt awful. I thought it was me. But I was afraid if I went to a 12-step program or therapy that it would be like ripping a Band-Aid off and all that stuff would come gushing out all at once and mm -hmm. it would overwhelm me. And that fear kept me from dipping my toe in the water. What I found was that is not what happens because when we admit we're powerless and we get that higher power into our lives in steps two and three, in my experience, my higher power regulated the pace of my growth, of which hard things came up and when. I didn't even know I had been sexually touched until it came up to me like five years into recovery. And that by that time, I had the perfect therapist, the perfect way to work with it. So don't worry that it's all going to hit you all at once and you won't be able to handle it. If you have a sponsor and you're working the steps and you're surrounding yourself with the winners, it'll be very manageable and, and it'll be a brand new happy life. <laughs> you wrote a little reminder here. It says, oh, yeah. remember. You do not have to scare yourself with your thoughts. You can choose what your mind focuses on. Make it something good. Lovely. Choose what my mind focuses on and make it something good. Like that. Thank you. After a short break, we'll continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives. I asked you to pick some music. You said this was a new experience for you, but you definitely made some choices here. So what do we have first? One of my favorite songs is Taylor Swift's song called Innocent. It basically says we're all innocent at our core. No matter what we've done, you're still an innocent and your bright lights still shine. No matter what you've done, how many times you think you failed. I love that. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? I was thinking about this. I usually come in here a little bit more prepared. 
at a recent meeting, we've started at this meeting to meet some of us in person and some people still on Zoom. Before COVID, when we met regularly in this space, there was also an AA meeting, a men's AA meeting that met on the other side of the community room and there were dividers, so we weren't hearing each other sharing and so on. And that AA meeting is still completely online. It is not starting to come back in person, but that doesn't mean that people don't show up at the church looking for it sometimes. And that happened at a recent meeting. There were several men who came in looking for that meeting, finding Al-Anon, deciding to stay for Al-Anon because what the heck, it's a 12-step meeting. And because of the number of people in the room, we actually divided into two tables. This is Michigan. We do table meetings, right? Close the dividers. And all the men ended up at one table and all of the women ended up at another table. I, I think this was not a random selection. Almost all of the meetings that I go to are mixed. There's one men's Al-Anon meeting that I'm aware of in the area, and I've been to it a few times when I needed a meeting that evening, but mostly I go to mixed gender meetings. So there were a couple of us, we were there for Al-Anon, and that's all we were there for. And there were a couple of guys that were in both programs, in and then there were a couple of guys that had really come looking for the AA meeting, and maybe this was their first experience of Eleanor. And so, as we do when there are new people in the meeting, the focus of the table was on the first step. We read the first step out of the Eleanor book and then opened the meeting for sharing. It was mixed. I think that the guys who this was their first experience of Eleanor, we heard a little bit more about their drinking and their recovery from their drinking than would have been normal in an LNM meeting. But what I personally did was to mentally put myself in a welcoming state of mind, a welcoming position, and to recognize that they were there because they needed a meeting. And once you get past the, is it alcohol or is it the loved one or is it both that you're recovering from, it's the same recovery. It's the same principles. It's the same 12 steps. There is one word that is different in all 12 steps between the two programs. Because in AA, you carry the message to alcoholics. And in Illinois, we carry the message to others. Because as somebody said once, and I just thought this was hilarious, we've carried the message to enough alcoholics, we need to stop doing that. And it was a good meeting. Had I adopted a different attitude of these guys are not talking about Alan and they're talking about their drinking and why are they here? I would have been miserable. It would not have been as good a meeting for me, at least. I can't really say how it was for the other people. So that was, it was an interesting experience. It's not the first time. I think it's the first time when it's really been almost sort of an, an equal balance, really. It was a mixed meeting. I've been in some combined AA Al-Anon meetings occasionally, but it's not a regular thing that I do. It was an experience, and it was a good experience, and I think a lot of it had to do with me adopting for myself an attitude of welcome. It could have been so easy to put the judgmental hat on. You already shared a couple of the whispered lies that you could have held on to. And this is the promise of God's doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. So that's such a miracle. Eventually, certainly there are things where I get caught up in the fear and the resistance, and I'll tell you about them in a minute. But in that case, you just had that moment of clarity. Yeah. You had a choice, and you chose to do the loving thing, which is God's will. 
<laughs> Absolutely. So I'm supposed to share too about my life and recovery, right? I'll tell you, we talked about this community thing and having our posse. And for me, I have this women for 35 years. They've been with me. Now I'm in Florida, but we're still are connected and meet once a month on Zoom. There's like a group of eight or 10 of us. Well, last week at this time, I would say I had gone dark, which by that, I mean, I was resisting reality, resisting life. I was not willing to let life live on life's terms. I was grieving. What happened is in this group, there's cancer, someone's husband cancer, someone's son died, someone's dog. All these things happened like in a short period of time. You know, I love it when people say all addictions, and I say codependency is an addiction too. All addictions are feeling disorders. And even after this long, all that raw pain that was going on, as I perceived it, with my dear, dear, dear women, I had trouble getting myself to exercise, my typical routine. I hadn't been to enough meetings, so my safety net wasn't woven to catch me. If I have lots of meetings in the bank, if something like this happens, I'm more resilient, but I hadn't been to enough meetings to to do that. Finally, I cried after some days of being maybe four days, just being, you know, I wasn't awful to anyone. I was just reading novels all the time and screw life, pissed off. So finally I cried and then I contacted a dear friend and just said, do you have the time to talk? And she's another woman, but not in this group that I'm very close to. And she, of course, was there and said exactly what I needed. And so that was so comforting. But what I realized was that I had let my safety net fray because mm-hmm. I was going to maybe one or two meetings a week. And I had let up on my prayer meditation. I have been going to meetings every day <laughs> for the last week. And it's such a simple thing, right? It's so much easier to be hopeful and positive and loving and unafraid and brave and patient (laughs) when we have enough meetings in the bank. That's my story about this week. (laughs) Thank you. I have an upcoming episode about loss and grief. This actually is going to be centered on a share that I gave at a meeting a few weeks ago where I talked about losses in my life that were both what you might call small and what you might call big, ranging from recognizing that I was no longer as engaged with a hobby that had been part of my life for a couple of decades and that I was grieving the loss of that, or the fact that both of my parents died last year and I'm grieving the loss of them. And the grief comes and goes that one of the things that I've learned in recovery is to feel it when it comes. Don't try to push it away. Because in fact, what I've discovered is if I let myself feel it, it comes and it goes more quickly than if I'm trying to resist feeling it. So I talked about these in my share. So I'm inviting you who are listening to send your own little contribution about Maybe a a time in your life when you felt grief about something big or little. And ideally, how you use some of the tools of recovery to, to help you with that. 
And you can join our conversation. You can call and leave a voicemail. You can send us an email. Gigi, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Again, that number is 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversations from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of worry about loved ones and how to overcome it, or any of our upcoming topics, including loss and grief. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to the topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at the recovery dot show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. Our website is the recovery dot show where we have all the information about the show, which mostly is the notes for each episode. It includes links to the books that we read from or talked about. And obviously I'll have a link to where you can buy Gigi's book. Worry less now. There's videos for the music that Gigi chose. There's also some links to other recovery podcasts and websites. And if you want to refer somebody to The Recovery Show, the easiest thing to do is just send them to the website, therecovery.show, because you can listen there or you can subscribe there on your favorite podcatcher device, whatever that might be. So yeah, therecovery.show. What's our second song that you chose, Gigi? I chose Angel Who Flew Too Close to... The Ground by Willie Nelson. And I just love the poetry of the image of the angel who's perfect and beautiful and then crashes into the ground and breaks her wing. And uh, the person who finds her mends her wing, claiming that love is the greatest healer of all. And I think we're all at heart pure angels who've flown too close to the ground. We've had our hardships and crashes, but it's the love of our recovering sisters and brothers that have helped mend our wings so we can fly again. I'm going to start here with several shares about worry that you sent in response to my request to the email list for such shares. Kate wrote, hello, Spencer. Thanks for the opportunity to contribute to the podcast. When I read your email prompt, I immediately thought of a reading from Courage to Change. In the reading, the author describes turning the people in her life over to their higher power while meditating. The meditation described in the reading talks about wrapping each loved one in a blanket and envisioning that the blanket represents each person's higher power. I have used a version of this visualization when I find myself overwhelmed or just preoccupied with worry for another person. My sponsor has also reminded me to wrap myself in the blanket of my higher power as well. Best, Kate. I remember when I heard a similar vision in an al meeting for the first time. I loved it. Thanks for reminding me of it. I think the reading that you are talking about is from November 16th, Encouraged to Change. From Louise, we get, Hello, dear Spencer and recovery family. Thank you, as always, for all that you do. I just love your show, and it gives me such a sense of warmth and belonging every time I listen. 
I wanted to respond to your question about worrying about loved ones and how to overcome it. The answer is, yes, I do worry. But, fortunately, thanks to what I have learned in the rooms of recovery, I do not worry for long. First thing I learned in these rooms is that I cannot control the outcome of any of my loved ones drinking or using or the choices they make. I had no idea how sick my own thinking was before I got to recovery. I think I would have been rather offended if someone had told me that I was insane. But the truth is, I absolutely was. I grew up in dysfunction with a mother who was a double winner and suffered from depression and extreme mood swings with very high anxiety. And my dad, who was also a high-functioning alcoholic, abandoned myself and my brothers when I was aged four, so my poor mother lived on her nerves coupled with an explosive temper, which wasn't the most stable and nurturing environment to grow up in. I do believe I actually have CPTSD, Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, which I am coming to terms with, and I'm working through my healing journey. After coming into these rooms and learning all I can about alcoholism, reading the big book, working the 12 steps as outlined in the big book, once in Al-Anon and once in OA, I have nothing but compassion and forgiveness toward both of my parents. Did they do a good enough job in raising me and my brothers? Absolutely not. But I forgive them both, as they could only give me what they themselves had to give, which sadly wasn't much. They did pass on to me the insanity of growing up in an active alcoholic home by default, and no doubt I too passed that on to my children. Fear and anxiety is just the byproduct of this dis-ease. I am so thankful I found recovery, and one of the gifts I received was understanding and compassion for all my qualifiers. I'm also learning to love myself and accept myself for who I am, a survivor of child abuse, neglect, and trauma. I have a program of recovery and healing, and I am very grateful to have found these rooms. So what I find helpful is to pray, pray, and pray. I also mentally and emotionally wrap my loved ones in a spiritual blanket and hand them over to my higher power. I surrender them to Him, let go, and let God is a favorite slogan of mine. I have many favorite slogans. This too shall pass is a real gem, especially when faced with alcoholic fallout. Living with active alcoholism is like navigating your way around a field covered in landmines. Tread lightly and be prepared to take cover. I also ask my higher power daily to relieve me of obsessive thinking. I know the fear and worry that can pop out of nowhere. I have learned that I am not responsible for my first thought, but I am responsible for the next one. I do not have to attach to the distorted thoughts that creep into my mind. I can quickly ask my higher power, who I call God, to remove them. Today I have the awareness when I have slipped into fear, and the good news is I don't have to stay there. I heard that worrying is like sitting in a rocking chair. It gets me nowhere. I have also learned that fear and worry are addictive, so I better not get started. Also that once I start walking around the rim of the rabbit hole, I better watch out. I might fall in, so I try to stay away. Another wonderful tool is the Al-Anon Detachment Leaflet, which is easily accessible on the internet. Just type in Al-Anon Detachment and it's available for free as a PDF. That reading is so very helpful and it always snaps me out of a mental loop of ruminating or obsessive thinking. In closing, I just want to say that I have wasted many precious moments of my life worrying about things that just never showed up and that it is time I will never get back. So I need to redeem those precious hours by not giving away one more second to worrying. Not only that, but worrying about anything does not change what the outcome will be. In fact, it only makes it worse because now I have lost my precious serenity that I worked so very hard to get. 
I've discovered that most of my uncomfortable moments or even disagreements with my husband or children come from a place of fear. Either it comes down to fear of not getting what I want or fear of losing what I already have. Sounds simplistic, but it's so true. Today, when I believe that I am enough, I have enough, I do enough, I am less likely to fall into fear. Today, I do believe that my higher power is either everything or he is nothing. So if that is true, which is it for me? Except when I forget, what do I have to fear? Nothing. Wow, what a gift. Thank you for all that you do, Spencer. Many blessings and peace to you and all of your listeners as we trudge along the road to happy destiny, one step, one day at a time. Thank you for letting me share. Louise in California. Wow, Louise, a lot in there. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with worry and some of the tools that you have for letting go of it or at least lessening it for recognizing that you're just sitting in that rocking chair going nowhere, as you said. Also, I learned recently that the word trudge in 1930s American English meant to walk with purpose. So remember that when you're trudging the road of happy destiny, you're walking with purpose towards that happy destiny. Thanks. Deborah, send us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. This is Deborah from Florida. Hope all is well with you. I received the email you sent to the group regarding the topic of worry. What a great topic. Who has a loved one with this disease of alcoholism who has not worried and worried obsessively? Prior to Al-Anon, I was guilty of obsessive worry, negative projection, dark fear-driven thoughts filling my mind. I actually thought it was my duty as a mother to spend my days and nights filled with worry and fear. It never occurred to me that despite all of my well-intended hours committed to worry and obsessing, it, it was not only a waste of time, I was accomplishing absolutely nothing for my loved one, who, my son. And I was actually destroying my own health with it. Some of the early phrases I heard in Al-Anon that really helped me begin to be aware and then stop that behavior. The first one was, worry about nothing, pray about everything. And I did begin to pray for strength, for guidance, for freedom from anxiety. And I learned how to pray to my own higher power in a very different way than I thought of before. I was always praying for my son's sobriety, but now I was praying for guidance and wisdom and strength and for my own health. Another little saying, with defects attract defects and they don't like to play alone. Fear attracts insecurity, insecurity attracts anxiety, anxiety attracts obsession, and obsession attracts control, none of which helps anything. Another is to picture everyone I love wrapped in a soft, safe blanket and place them in my higher power's hands and then climb in myself. It's just such a calming, beautiful visual that really helped. And then if I'm lying awake and I start to feel that fear and worry and anxiety bubble up, I just say over and over again, bleep my child for God is awake. And all of these things just help me so much when I begin to feel my fear trigger, which I know is going to be closely followed by anxiety, obsession, and control. I read these kinds of messages over and over until the fear and the worry dissipate. And I attend meetings and read literature and work the steps. But all of that has changed my reaction 
when I feel that the grips of fear starting to take me, and it's usually over something that hasn't even happened, my imaginings, it's my negative projection, it's my anxiety because of things from the past. It's not going to help me to live in that space. I have to shift my thinking and my behavior and just positive thoughts, trusting my higher power. Thank you, Deborah, for sharing your worry tools. So many tools today. Sandy wrote, Hi, Spencer. I have really enjoyed the recovery show on my long walks over lunch at work. It's been a true lifesaver these last few months. Thank you so much for this topic. It's definitely one that applies to me. My therapist says I struggle with black and white or all or nothing thinking, and she's correct. I would often tell the story to newcomers about how I composed my husband's eulogy in my head while I was out searching for him on one of his last, so far, binges. Now that my qualifier is sober, I have a tendency to pick at other character defects of his and others and use them as reasons why my plans will never work out. I think about the worst possible outcomes from there. This is a mix of worrying about others and my own selfishness. For example, how will this person's issues prevent me from having success? In reality, my plans are not perfect and I have choices. For example, this last week I've been on vacation with my husband. Even after six years of Al-Anon, I found myself nagging him to get out of the cabin earlier in the morning so we could go on our adventures. I had my own car on the trip, a tip I learned in the program but I didn't even use it because I wanted to do the activities with him, when in reality I could have started the journey and he could have joined later. It's a learning process. For example, this idea that I worry about others because I'm actually afraid of the pain or inconvenience I think they will cause me is new, and I'm glad you brought up this topic because it's the first time I had a chance to think about it that way. Sandy M. Sandy, thanks for sharing that that new insight. Glad we could help. Patrick wrote, Hi, Spencer. On the topic of worry about loved ones and how to overcome it, maybe I have a different perspective on the subject because I'm an alcoholic, so I am more likely the cause of worry for my partner, which does not mean that I don't worry about my partner. I know that I cause my partner and family and friends to worry about me, about my behavior, about my well-being and health, and what damage I might cause every time I was back out drinking. For myself, I know that I might manipulate my loved one. The fact that they cared so much about me made me get away with things that I am still ashamed for. I do recognize that it is my illness that brought me there. And it made people around me sick also because healthy relations became dependent relations where healthy boundaries were no longer in place. People around me became overprotecting and in the end enabled me to continue behaving as I did. Because people around me became more and more worried and desperate because they could not help me, I could only help myself. My behavior eventually made people turn their backs on me, and I lost relations because of it. I still have a lot of amends to do, which was, of course, by my own doing. On worrying about others, now I'm in recovery, I frequently worry about my loved one. How is she coping with our past and her very bad experiences with me? I don't know what I can do to help her heal. I'm ashamed about myself and what I did to her. She does not want to go to Al-Anon or help in any other way. I have learned the only thing I can do is to share my feelings, trying not to have expectations. And I can be who I am today to let her see and feel what recovery is like. But I also have behaviors or character defects that will remind her of what was. I need to remember myself 
The only one I can change is me. Thanks for the opportunity to share this, Patrick. Thank you, Patrick, for sharing that with us. Mark sent us a voice memo about worry. Hello, Spencer. This is Mark M. I'm responding to your request about worry. In my story, I've been in Al-Anon and Families Anonymous for more than a dozen years. And worry was always part of the mix of what brought me there and what I was looking to fix. When I came to those programs early on, I primarily was focused on other people because it is a family disease. As I began to pick up addicted loved ones, I was really preoccupied with how other people in my family were reacting to them and to the situation. And I always identified other people as the worrying kind, and I was more even-tempered and managed that, or so I thought. If I wasn't particularly given to worry, I was more on the denial side of things or forcing myself to see things through rose-colored glasses. But as time went on and you begin the process of turning your gaze away from others onto yourself and into what's really going on, of course, I did worry. With good cause to some extent, particularly given I thought these issues, these problems were my responsibility, you'd have to be crazy not to worry in some respect. And so I thought at the time. I've been in these programs for more than dozen years now, and I've done a lot of work on that and made a lot of progress, I hope. And mostly it's because I've come to recognize I have no ability to control these things I tended to worry about, and that it was in that sense totally unproductive and counterproductive, in that it pitched me into this state, this queasy state, where I was anxious and yet could really do nothing, certainly nothing positive to bring about better results or even better conditions. So it was taking a lot of work and a lot of thought and meditation on this stuff. And I think I have made some progress. I certainly have. But one of the things I've noticed is worry is one of those things that even when you're not consciously doing it, when things are going well, it's still there in the background. It's what I keep coming back. And what I've noticed is when it bubbles up, it really hasn't lost any of its potency. All this time in the program and all that I've learned, and primarily it is that I've done what I've learned, these things are not my responsibility and they're not in my control either, which I suppose is part of that. And those are linked concepts. And so to the extent that I can turn these things over to the fellowship and my higher power, it's always been a gratifying result for me. I feel better, and events will take their course, regardless of how I do. So it's better to feel better about them as I go along. It clears my head, allows me to make better decisions, and allows me to interact much more freely with these people that I have this worry about, which is a big benefit to it. But it's still as potent as ever. Their solution has always been the same for me, and that's to turn this stuff over to my higher power and to recognize there's only so much I can do and that I'm doing the best I can. It's a great topic and one I always need to revisit, and thanks for your service. Thanks, Mark. There's a lot in there that I can identify with, for sure. No question. Mary Lou writes, 
How do you do, Spencer? This is Mary Lou. When I first read your question in your email, I laughed out loud. Is there anything you can actually do to stop worrying about loved ones? As far as regular daytime worrying goes, for me, the most important step was to understand that it was a choice, not something that was dropped down upon me from on high. When I came to al I really didn't see worrying as a choice. One exercise that was very helpful for me was to just count the number of times I became aware that I was worrying in a day. Once I became aware of how frequently I was worrying, then I could try to understand what happened right before I became aware of worrying, kind of like the way people are able to successfully stop smoking, to understand the need that each cigarette was attempting to meet, such as boredom, reflexive habit, avoidance of specific feelings, etc. It quickly became clear to me that some of my worrying was just almost like an automatic response to situations that involved uncertainty. And crazily enough, although I was running a line of credit, so to speak, on my loved one and attributing my worry to them, not that some of the things they were doing weren't worrying, but that sent me back to steps one through three. Eventually, I came to see that I was really using worrying as a strategy to avoid my own problems, especially my discomfort with feelings of uncertainty. pre elanon I was consumed with other people's problems, and it kept me quite busy. I often thought growing up in an alcoholic home that my more normal life problems lacked the drama of the alcoholic's problems, jail, DUI, job loss, etc. Just as self-pity is an ineffective strategy for self-care, Worrying about someone else is often a misplaced effort to demonstrate that we care. The other thing I've learned is that when I'm activated by someone else's behaviors, I'm the one in need of help. Maybe someone else needs help too, but Al-Anon teaches us that that's not our responsibility. So now I use my awareness of my feelings of activation as a sign that I need something else. It's my responsibility to try different strategies to determine how to self-soothe. In the example I gave about using worrying about someone else, I can say to myself, oh, you're in uncertainty now. Here's where I can go with that and remind myself to what ends up gone in the past. Then I can sit with that feeling and or try different strategies, hopefully non-destructive ones, to take care of myself. I don't have to leave where I live, although that sometimes helps. Going for a walk, meditating, calling a friend, applying hand lotion, taking a bath or shower, eating a healthy meal, reading al literature, listening to your podcast, etc. It doesn't require anything fancy. Thanks, Mary Lou. Whew, and thanks, Mary Lou, for your sharing and your strategies. Anne sent us a voice memo also about worry. Hi, Spencer. This is Anne from Florida. I'm responding to your prompt about worrying about loved ones and how to overcome it. I grew up at the knees of a champion warrior. As I became an adult, my coping mechanism for things I could not control was to imagine possible scenarios and then how I would respond, as if having imagined myself experiencing terrible things could prepare me to handle them. All it really did was steal my joy in those moments. As I have lived life, I can now see that none of those scenarios actually happened. It's the things I never expected that came and knocked me to my knees. Once I was driving my car and my side airbags exploded for no reason, disabling my car and stunning me. That was a scenario I had never imagined. Yet, my higher power, who I call God, carried me through it and protected me. 
I began to see the futility of what I had been doing in my imagination and learning to trust God for the future and live more in the present. How do I handle worry and fear now? First, I'm able to recognize it when it is happening and choose from several tools. Am I hungry or tired? Address those things. Am I restless? Get outside. Get some exercise. Find someone else to serve. There is power in speaking my worries out loud. I can pray about it out loud or call a trusted prayer partner or Al-Anon friend. I can play uplifting music that reminds me I am powerless and God is powerful. When fear and temptation to worry get really intense, I can visualize myself surrendering myself and the object of my worry to God. I have meditations on what I consider to be God's love letter to me. My favorite is on Psalm 27 in the Bible. I imagine myself fleeing as my enemies, fear and worry, pursue me. I know they want to destroy me. I can see the tent of God in the distance and make a run for it, diving in head first. Once I'm in that tent, I am protected. There are guards at the door that prevent my enemies from getting to me. I can hear them out there, frustrated and angry that they are now powerless. But I'm no longer afraid because I know they cannot harm me in this tent. In the tent, I am invited into the very presence of God, and I am overcome by His beauty. He invites me to ask all of my questions, and He never tires of teaching me. I am completely consumed by His peace, and my enemies are destroyed. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Anne, for that calming vision, and also for the reminder that often the things we worry about are not the things that actually happen. Now we got some folks who wrote about topics other than worry. Lisa, for example, says, hello, I'd like to thank you for the podcasts. I'm stuck, though. My husband quit drinking for years, but occasionally goes on a bender. He didn't use the 12 steps when he quit drinking, so the behavior didn't change. And I'm working on the he-he's. The stuck part for me is he was, maybe is, a cheater. feel like I don't know how to 100% work the Al-Anon program because of the past betrayal. Of course, that sounds crazy what I just typed, because it's me that needs the 12 steps. But like I said, I'm stuck. Any guidance would be appreciated. Thanks. And thank you for sharing, Lisa. I don't know if anyone knows how to 100% work the Al-Anon program. I know I don't. For me, it's one day at a time, one meeting at a time, one reading at a time, one small piece of one step at a time, and, of course, the inevitable backward steps along the way. One gift that Elnon gave to me, though, was the clarity of thought to understand what I was able or willing to accept and what I could not accept or could not at least live with. So maybe just start with that. Start with, I have this question what I can live with, what I can accept, and I want some clarity on that, and that's where I'm going right. That may be be helpful. Amanda writes to us with a question. She says, Hey, Spencer, I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for all your service. I've been loving recent episodes. I have a question to source out to the Recovery Show community. My partner and I are preparing for our wedding this year. Of course, it's bringing up the desire to control, perfectionism, obsession, avoidance, managing, and wanting to practice letting go, allowing my higher power to work and trusting things to unfold. 
It is also bringing up the issues of navigating family members in the disease of alcoholism, like the choice to not invite family members I'm estranged with or who are just too challenging to be around given the dynamics of untreated alanonism or alcoholism. I'd love to hear anyone's experience, strength, and hope on how they use the program while planning and experiencing weddings, whether it be their own or attending one. Or if anyone is willing even to do an entire guest host episode on the topic, I'd be hugely appreciative. Thank you so much. All the best, Amanda. And then she sent a second note. And, of course, more alanonic distorted thinking to the list like anxiety, struggling to know what I want slash need, codependency, guilt, shame, financial slash future, fear, all the things. Yeah, all the things. Well, hey, Amanda, here I am. I'm putting your question or your questions out to the community. If you have any wisdom or experience to share with Amanda, you can send it to me. I'll forward it to her. I might also share it in the podcast, so if you want your communication to be private, please say so. Pat sent a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. This is Pat from the West Coast. I was really interested in the most recent episode, Faith and Fear, thinking a lot about what is faith lately and questioning it. I never quite had settled on something I was comfortable with. I quite fit in with a lot of the readings. Let me just read something I wrote. And just to say, this is my experience, strength, and hope. And it's not a criticism of anybody else's way of thinking. My vision of a higher power has bothered me for a long time. This concept that our higher power is supposed to be the God of our understanding. But when people speak with such finality and assuredness of God in such a way that implies For me, it feels like the God everyone should and will eventually understand if only we give it enough time or enough determination. And I just recently came across a July 6th Hope for Today reading that really gave me the key to coming to an understanding of my higher power that really, it satisfies me. It doesn't make me feel like I'm coming up short. So some quotes from that piece, it says in part, Quote, I didn't know faith is a spiritual skill to be cultivated. I didn't know my faith would evolve. And also, quote, I have also discovered something rather unnerving. I can easily possess faith one day and struggle with it the next. It took me a while to become comfortable with the variable nature of feeling faith. The day I know my struggle with feeling faith is not an indication that I don't possess it. It's a natural part of the process. Faith exists whether I feel it or not, end quote. And that was the key for me, that word variable. So my higher power, I've come to realize, doesn't have to have a single faith. I have this very old school higher power that I grew up with. It's very personal. And that's the one that I give thanks to very naturally and that I have gratitude with. I have the faithless one that's interesting that I give my stomach aches to. And their hand is always there and out and ready to take my stress when I have done everything I can or I've burdened myself with too much to do or too high an expectation. There's the higher power I turn to most often, and that is the principles of the Al-Anon program, where I find guidance for the choices that I make and the attitudes I have. It has no faith and no personhood, and it's simply the written word. There's a higher power I feel in the bond I have with other Al-Anon members without bringing God into it at all. It's simply 
human beings who share a common reference point that has been successful for them. And that is the miracle for me, not some magic or I've always said puppet master because I just can't see a God dabbling in our lives, saving one person from getting on a doomed plane while letting 200 others get on it at takeoff. But the inspiration and commitment of all of those in the past who have contributed to a program that has given me the path that I am today, and this is the path that I like the very best. So I I hope that rings true for somebody else or maybe helps somebody else find their way to their own higher power. For me, it's just created a, an incredible sense of peace. I don't have to feel like I'm falling short in some way which I know is nobody's intent in Al-Anon, but nonetheless, that old perfectionism comes up. So thank you for letting me share, and thank you so much for the episode. I really appreciated your guest and her story and her thought, and it really helped me coalesce what my own feelings are. Okay, have a great day, and thanks for all your help. Bye-bye. Thanks, Pat. July 6th in Hope for Today reading. I'll have to check that out myself because my higher power is definitely variable. Rose writes, Dear Spencer, still listening continually all the day long for the most part of all the shows from the beginning. Here are some thoughts on Higher Power Episode 49, Getting Started in Elanon with you and Wendy. The God Issue Perhaps this has already been mentioned or discussed, but giving over our will to our higher power as we understand him, her, they, is a way of tricking ourselves to stop allowing our small lower power slash self to have the reins or to think we have the reins, our ego self, our over-identifying self. This helps us get out of our own way and tap into the vital force of life, God, higher power, the universe, allowing us to stop resisting, stop playing God, stop forcing our will and be humble, knowing that the world in general does not revolve around us. To train ourselves to see the world as a benevolent place to develop trust that things will work out how they are supposed to work out, to release our judgment about the situation. There's only one judge, and he's not that judgy. What a great way to cultivate serenity by taking that load off our back, and a super way to cultivate humility. This reminds me of how I got so much out of the I Am Not God episode. I adore the show and greatly appreciate your staggering contribution to humanity in this community. Warmly, Rose. Thank you, Rose, for all that visioning about God, higher power. I'm not God. Thanks. Faith left a voicemail. Hi, my name is Faith, and I am commenting on the episode Leading into Faith with Eric's question about is he crazy for dreading what would happen if his wife stopped drinking. I feel that also. My husband has been a high-functioning alcoholic for all of our marriage, over 20 years, and it is a slow downward spiral that is hidden from a lot of people if they're on the outside looking in, but in a lot of ways, it feels like the alcohol is the solution and the problem at the same time, that without it, He's irritable, restless, and discontent. So for me, I have programs. I have recovery. I listen to podcasts. I go to meetings. I read literature. I take care of myself. 
I exercise. I do things that bring me joy, things that make me happy, and I live one day at a time knowing that the success or failure of my marriage is not entirely dependent on me. Alcoholism is a cunning, baffling, powerful disease, and I do not have all the answers, and I don't know what his bottom is going to be. If he's going to have a bottom, all I know is that today I keep the focus on me and not on the alcoholic. But I feel uncertain of what would happen if I ripped the patch off of the lifeboat is what it feels like. I feel like I have a leak in a lifeboat and ripping the alcohol away is like taking the patch off. So I get it. I feel that too. So thank you for this podcast. And I love you all. And I'm glad that I'm not alone in the way that I think I feel. Thank you for this service. Faith, thank you so much for sharing your own experience and feelings. You are so right that you are not alone. And in that lies part of the power of this program of recovery. We discover that we are not alone, and we provide evidence to others that they are not alone either. Andrea wrote, Hi, Spencer. I was just listening to your recent podcast where the person asked about preventing or causing a crisis. It made me think about what happened to me back in December 2020. My husband and I had an argument about his drinking. He was drunk, got mad, and left. Kids were asleep, and I couldn't stop him from driving, so I called 911 to stop him from hurting himself or someone else. Although I knew it would be not my fault if he hurt someone, that action would affect me because our finances are joint. His legal and restitution could change our family forever. Anyhow, that action caused a big crisis and brought everything to a head. I'm still dealing with the fallout from it. Thanks again for continuing this show, Andrea. And thank you, Andrew, for sharing that experience, that example of causing a crisis. And I understand that you're still dealing with it. Sally seconds an idea. She writes, Hi, Spencer. I was recently listening to the Leaning Into Faith episode number 384, and I heard a listener write in about a podcast for teens. I second the idea. My teenage daughter is very affected by growing up in an alcoholic home, but so far has resisted going to Alateen, even on Zoom, due to severe anxiety. A podcast might be something she'd do if it was teenagers talking on it. Potentially, though, a podcast is not the means that teens use these days to communicate. Thinking TikTok, etc. So it would really need a lot of teen input. There are some Al-Anon members in the U.S. I know with teens that are well on their Alateen journey, as well as Alateen groups in Australia, where I am, that might consult. Thanks again for everything you do, Sally. Thanks, Sally. And again, I would be happy to consult with, support someone who wants to try an Alateen-focused podcast or TikTok series. I don't know. But at this time, I really, I don't have the energy to do this myself. But yeah, it's a great idea. Carolyn or Caroline, I'm never sure about that name, writes, Good morning, Recovery Show. I would appreciate if anyone has an experience to share about going through cancer or supporting someone with cancer through Al-Anon. I'm feeling despondent at the moment. Any suggestion on f- or future shares or episodes about how to use Al-Anon with cancer would be greatly appreciated. Kindly, Carolyn. Thank you for writing. 
I have not used my program to help me support someone with cancer, but I have used it in other maybe similar contexts, such as helping to support my brother who was a caregiver and my parents as their dementias progressed. And I feel that the basic principle of taking care of myself first is really critical in that kind of situation. It really helped me to be present for them and support them in the ways that I could. So there's a little bit of something. If you're listening and you have used your recovery tools to help you support a loved one with cancer, send us an email or a voicemail, a voice memo with your experience, strength, and hope. Because I know Carolyn's not the only person out there who's struggling with this. And that is it for the listener feedback for today. Gigi, thank you. Thank you so much for spending some time with me, with us, and sharing some of the things you've learned about how to worry less and that you recorded in your book, Worry Less Now. We're going to go out with your third song. Okay. Our last song selection is Everything's All Right from Jesus Christ Superstar. It really is true that we can trust that everything is all right in spite of what things might look like, the appearances. We're just not smart enough to judge what isn't all right, let alone know how to fix it. Our best course is to know that everything is in perfect order, even when it doesn't look like it. Think of all the bad times that turned out great. For example, my three divorces got me willing to get help, and that made all the difference. I'm now happily married to my fourth husband for 33 years. Thank you for listening. Please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so that we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.